in this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, triaging patients, and we'll also talk about the different things that are included in primary survey as you care for your patients who are in the emergency room or who are seeking emergency care. And we'll wrap up by talking about a few lingering concepts included in emergency nursing care that we haven't hit on in other areas. So let's start by talking about primary survey and what all is included in primary survey when it comes to emergency and disaster nursing. Primary survey focuses on airway, breathing, circulation, but it also focuses on disability, exposure, facilitation of adjuncts and family, which is basically family presence, which we talked about at the very beginning of the semester, and then other resuscitation aids. And remember that any time Um, Generally speaking, we're going to be focused on ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, unless there's uncontrolled external hemorrhage, which means that you can see that the patient is losing large amounts of blood, and in that situation, you have to reprioritize CAB, which means you would prioritize the circulation issue, the loss of blood, before you prioritize airway and breathing. And you would do that, you would do so, uh, you would reprioritize by simply holding direct pressure on the bleed and stopping that bleed before it becomes catastrophic hemorrhage. So A stands for alertness, which is actually a focused neurological examination. Um, You don't have to spend a lot of time doing a thorough neuro exam on your patient if you are able to assess their um, you know, baseline neurological function. Are they moving their arms? Are they moving their legs? Are they awake? Are they alert? Are they responsive? Um, all of those things can quickly tell you about their neurological examination, and that's called a focused neurological assessment. Now, um, a thorough neuroassessment would, you know, include deep tendon reflexes and motor strength and all of those things that may not be included in the initial primary survey. So don't confuse alertness, the focused neurological examination of seeing if they're conscious, seeing if they can talk to you um, with, you know, uh, anything else. You are also simultaneously assessing their airway because if they're able to talk to you and answer simple questions, what's your name, where are you, then that tells you also about their airway. If they're not breathing, if they're not talking to you, if they're not ventilating air, breathing um, air in and taking it out, then you know that you're also dealing with an uh, airway issue and you need to prepare to rapidly intubate the patient alongside the provider. Remember that breathing encompasses this concept more of ventilation, that they are getting air in, getting air out, and that without breathing and ventilation, we cannot have gas exchange. And so you may see a patient who isn't breathing um, and maybe they have a pulse. Maybe um, they are breathing, but they're still cyanotic. All of those things give you clues about what's going on. And so breathing is included in the primary survey of a patient. Um, You'll see in the emergency room everything from asthma attacks to panic attacks to um, complete 
uh, respiratory failure to acute respiratory distress. Remember, um, Lindsay Rasmussen talked about this in her presentation, but um, indicators that a child is in respiratory distress are those intercostal retractions, the head bobbing, um, and in that situation, you can see that the patient has an airway. Um, they are alert, but they may not be breathing adequately because they have indicators of respiratory distress. And one of the points that she made was that the first thing to do, especially if there's copious amounts of nasal secretions, is to section the nasal, the nasal secretions away because infants are obligate nose breathers, meaning they really primarily breathe out of their noses. And a small, small, small amount of nasal secretions can actually cause uh, respiratory distress in those little babies. We've already talked about perfusion and of uh, the other podcasts that I put together for you, but circulation is included in the primary survey of a patient. And so you're wanting to see those indicators. Are the peripheral pulses absent or are they present? Are they bounding or are they weak? Um, what's the skin color and temperature? Is it moist? Is it not? Is it mottled? Um, is there, are they alert, but are they dizzy and confused? That is more of an indicator of circulation and cardiac output and perfusion than, um, you know, it might be of neurological status because perfusion, poor perfusion is going to cause poor neurological function. Um, and then remember that we're also then going to start IV lines, start IV fluids, initiate any transfusions that the patient may need, especially if there's like anything happening like um, catastrophic blood loss or hemorrhaging. Um, we're gonna have to replace all of the blood that they've lost. And so you'll want to start two large bore IVs um, and you're not gonna really worry too much about those being um, in optimal places for IVs. You just wanna get those in and get it started. Remember that anytime you can't um, start an IV, you're not going to waste a whole bunch of time. You're not gonna get the PIC team down to help you start an IV. You're just gonna do something called an interosseous cannula, which is um, where they would just basically burrow a hole straight into the bone, usually of the arm, and um, that will give us uh, a really good uh, line to access really we're dumping fluid right into the bone marrow and then it enters into the circulation pretty easily. So that's an emergency intervention that you aren't not, you wouldn't ever see probably on the floor, but is something that maybe used on an ambulance or in the emergency room setting. Um, we'll look for other types of disability. And one of the ways that we're gonna do that is by, um, again, kind of elaborating on that brief neurological exam we did at the very beginning of alertness. We've also looked at any confusion and altered mental status and circulation. And so here we're looking at Glasgow Coma Score, their level of consciousness, um, and kind of looking, are they aphasic? Are they able to, um, you know, lift their arms up symmetrically? Or they, do they have that equal grip strength and um, what about their pupils? Do, are their pupils blown? Are they reactive? Um, remember that you're also looking for exposure. E is for exposure. And so this is where we are commonly cutting off clothes 
so that we can expose the entire body and see if there's any areas of deformity, of disability, of dysfunction that we've missed um, when the clothes are on. Clothes hide disability, and so you have to cut those off, and that is part of the primary survey. Um, don't ever be scared to do that in the emergency room. Um, you would then identify, is there anything um, you know, sticking out of the patient? Is there any in signs of internal bleeding, like the colon sign or um, something like that, where they're having, you know, ecchymosis areas or, um, you know, some, if it's like a aortic dissection even, you'll see that by cutting the clothes off and then seeing that midline pulsation. Um, and then anytime we can, the F in primary survey is facilitate adjuncts and family presence. And so we're always going to try and get family involved, but that is not the very first part of primary survey. That really comes after we've done a full um, kind of assessment of where the patient's initial status is. And then remember that we will eventually get to secondary survey as we have seen initial problems, identified initial problems and done initial treatments to stabilize the patient then you can kind of introduce that more thorough, full head-to-toe assessment, full neurological evaluation. Um, you know, that's when you would start asking about current medications, drug allergies, blood type, all of those things. That will be much later um, after you've done that primary survey where you're looking at airway, breathing, circulation, disability. You've exposed the patient to see if there's any secondary injuries you missed the first time. You've gotten family involved as appropriate. Um, and so that secondary survey is going to encompass a much more thorough head-to-toe assessment so that we can then, um, but that's after the patient has been completely stabilized. So let's talk about the five-level emergency severity index. This is what we use to triage patients in the emergency care setting. And this is highlighted really well by table 68-2, which is in Lewis 8th edition, or sorry, 11th edition on page 1606. So there's five different levels to triage, and this is something that I want you to know. Um, ESI 1 or level 1 would be the most unstable patient. This is someone who does not have, they have unstable vital signs, right? They're, maybe they're not breathing, maybe their heart rate isn't stable, maybe it's high, maybe it's way too low. They have an obvious threat to their life or to their organs, and they need to be seen immediately to preserve life or organ function. And so examples of this are your full cardiac arrest patient. We're not talking about a heart attack here. We're talking about someone whose heart is not beating. Um, maybe this would also be, you know, like your stroke patient, someone who's having a stroke and who is no longer conscious and they need to be intubated because of the stroke that they've had. Um, or maybe it's just severe respiratory distress where, you know, they're having covid and their SpO2 is so low that they're having extreme cyanosis, they need to be seen right away. Maybe it's status asthmaticus. That is all, those are all examples of an ESI-1 where they have to be seen immediately, treatment has to start immediately in order to preserve life or organ function. And they are considered hemodynamically unstable, which means they um, have instability of their pulse, their blood pressure, their respiratory, and their ventilatory status. 
And ES2 is where those things, the vital signs are threatened, but they haven't become completely unstable yet. And so an example of this would be someone who's having chest pain. Maybe they're having a heart attack. Maybe they're, um, they may have a heart attack soon, but their blood pressure is still normal. Their chest pain is severe, but their heart rate is still normal. And so we know that they need to be seen quickly, um, but it's chest pain and it's not like that, you know, they're having a decreased level of consciousness or uh, absent pulses. So this is something that can be delayed within 10 minutes before treatment must start. And um, here we have a likely threat to their organs or life, but it's not necessarily an obvious threat. So this would be an ESI2. Um, an ESI3 is someone who is stable. They have a possible threat to their life. Maybe, you know, something could happen, uh, but it doesn't have to be seen right away. And we could even delay treatment for up to an hour. So here, this might be someone who comes into the emergency room with abdominal pain and they've had a lot of vomiting and nausea and diarrhea. And so, you know, it's possible that they're so dehydrated that they're going to have poor perfusion and decreased cardiac output, but it's more likely that they're going to be dehydrated, right? And so they're hemodynamically stable, their blood pressure is normal, their heart rate is normal, their respiratory rate is normal. All of those things are fine. Um, things like hip fracture, that's another example that Lewis gives. The reason hip fracture is in ESI3 is because they're in a lot of pain. We would expect them to need treatment for this, but it's not, um, they're not having any issues with their breathing, with their circulation, and um, they're hemodynamically stable, but they do need treatment and they will probably end up getting admitted to the hospital. Your ES4 is your stable patient um, that could have delayed treatment and doesn't really have any threat to their life or to their organs. So maybe they have, you know, um, a laceration on their eye and it's bleeding, but you also know that the bleeding is not so severe that it's going to end up impacting their blood pressure. It's not like they're going to need a blood transfusion or anything like that. So that would be an ESI-4. And then an ESI-5 is um, even more minor. This would be like Maybe they have a minor burn. Maybe they burnt themselves on their, um, you know, uh, stovetop and they've come to the emergency room for treatment. There is no threat at all to life. There's no threat at all to organs. Their treatment could be delayed. In fact, they probably could have gone to an urgent care or to a primary care physician. The helpful thing here, you guys, is that you will get called um, you know, if you haven't already started getting called by people or getting text messages from people and they say, you know, um, look at my child's rash or look at this rash on my skin or, um, you know, I have a really bad headache. What should I do? Well, those are all your ESI fives, right? Take Tylenol, call your doctor, um, you know, take a nap. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily something that would make you go, you need to drop everything you're doing right now and go to the emergency room right now. Now, if someone came to you and they said, you know, my child is, has been having a really hard time breathing and his lips are blue. Do you think I should call my doctor? You're going to say, absolutely not. You need to go to the nearest emergency room right now. And so that's how you can use these different indicators of stability 
um, indicators of life or organ threat, and how soon they should see the healthcare provider to kind of give you some guidance on um, what type of recommendations you can make in that situation, and how in the emergency room we would really direct care and resources at these different levels. If this is the first thing that you're doing to study for emergency nursing for this test, upcoming exam four in acute and chronic, I really want you to stop um, listening and stop kind of studying from here. I want you to really get into the readings and let the, um, and first of all, read, uh, sorry, listen and watch the recorded presentation that's in the module that was done by Lindsay Rasmussen. I want you to start with that presentation and then get into the readings and really let her presentation in these podcasts guide your reading. I don't want you to spend a whole lot of time if we haven't talked about it here or on that um, presentation. I really was intentional about pulling questions from the readings and from her presentation. So you cannot go wrong if you follow that advice. Thanks so much and please let me know if you have any questions at all.